There we go. Okay, so we're talking about the workers in the vineyard today, and I thought I'd just um, start by reading the parable. Um, Clay pointed out to me earlier that um, there's a sword in the back of the room, so please refrain from doing that. If, <laughs> if using that if I, I say something wrong. But uh, um, the parables in um, Matthew 20. Um, I'm going to start off by talk, reading the part about the rich young man coming to Jesus, um, which is actually Matthew 19, and I'm going to skip over um, a few verses after that and get into the labor and the workers in the vineyard. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good, good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. <clears throat> and then moving on to Matthew 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idly in the marketplace. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received the denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. So when we were splitting up parables um, at the beginning of the summer, uh, I was really excited about this one first because I'm a labor and employment attorney, and you know, it, um, we often get calls from employers saying, "Well, uh, can, we're about to implement this policy or this pay practice, and, and what's your advice? What do, how do you think? Is it legal? Um, how do you think the workers will receive it? Is it a good idea?" And I've never had anyone call and say that I wanted to, that they want to pay the workers who work the least the same as the workers who work the most. Um, if they did, I would say, what, are you, are you crazy? You know, I mean, the, number one, you've got to pay, pay people by the hour. Number two, if you don't have a union, you're going to cause a union campaign. You're going to cause an uprising. Um, it's just not a good idea. But thankfully, this is not a um, parable about good management advice. Um, and so we'll leave, leave that at that. Um, 
I was also excited because when you read the parable, as we just did, it's not something that squares with the world's terms. It's hard to, to it's kind of shocking when you hear it. And we've heard, I know that everyone's heard it many times, and, and as with many of the parables, when you hear, hear it over and over again, it kind of loses its effect. But the idea that people who work for one hour would be paid the same amount as someone who worked for 12 hours is just foreign to us. Um, it's not something that the left would like. It's not something the right would like. And um, so in preparing for the class, I, I, I tried to, to see how the first and last worked in the, um, just by bringing that up to people in, in the last couple weeks. And so it, I was in the, the breakfast line a, a couple weeks ago for, for church, and I was at the very end of the line, and I joked, the last shall be first, and, and nobody really thought it was funny. And then, <laughs> and then uh, we we have a problem returning library books on time, and so I brought in the library books last weekend, and, and the library clerk didn't think it was funny either. And finally, I learned that um, it's not that last shall be first does not work with license tag renewal, and the, the, so luckily I'm here today. Um, <clears throat> but um, there's still j ways to read this parable that um, I, I, just looking around on the internet at some things I've found, um, some people would say, well, this shows that we need to um, give freely to the poor. That's what the parable means. We need to have immigration reform. Um, th there are actually sermons out there that say that's the message. And there's on the other side, there are a lot of sermons or, or, or articles about the parable that says, well, this is about, you know, we don't need to look down on these people who, who um, join Christianity late in life or who do bad things and then start Christianity. And, and, and there's, that's true, but that's not what the parable is about. Um, I think Michael last week showed Jeffrey Dahmer and his conversion story. And so it would be, well, it's okay, he's still part of the kingdom. That's kind of the line of thinking going, even though the terrible things he did. Um, but the, the parable is actually, it's a very powerful metaphor about where God reaches us and where we have to be to receive his grace. Um, and, and we'll talk about that more later. But just a little bit of context. It's in Matthew 20, as we said. Um, the rich young man comes to Jesus just after Jesus has said, let the children come to me. Um, and he's on the way to Jerusalem. So he knows that he's going to die, that he's going to, to hang on the cross. Um, and that he's the only one who knows that. And so he's he, directly after the parable... Um, he, he and his disciples moved in towards Jerusalem um, and he t takes them aside and he says to them for the third time he says see we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day um, but they still can't hear it even the disciples who he's speaking to directly um, much less the rich young man can't understand that, the, that that's the, what the Messiah is here to do. They're still expecting kind of the glory story, the Messiah who comes in and um, brings Israel to what they expected. Um, and, and so right after he tells them that he's headed to die, um, the mother of James and John comes and says, well, 
can you, will you put my two sons on your right and left side in the kingdom of heaven? So if she was around, she obviously missed the point of the story. Um, and in Mark, where there's not the laborers in the vineyard, vineyard to go straight from the rich young man, it's um, actually it's the um, it's James and John themselves who go and ask to be on on the right and left hand side of, of Jesus. Um, so that kind of goes into well, why he used the parable. Why was this parable effective? And we talked about it in the other classes that you know, parables, you hear them, they're not something you necessarily understand, except especially this parable. But Jesus telling people that he's got to go to die in Jerusalem, and that's what the Messiah is to do, they're not understanding that either. But when you hear a story like this, when you hear the that the workers in the vineyard who come last get the same as the ones who work first, it, it causes you to your, your previous explanations about justification, about how we're saved, are, are challenged. And though you can't, and we can't figure it out, and it's, it's not a, a clear message, it causes us to think about those. And um, it, while it might not be there, um, it causes us to reflect on our previous misconceptions. Um, and it's, that still works with us. But <clears throat> so, what was the any ideas on what the rich young man was trying to do when he came to Jesus, or any thoughts about his question? <clears throat> um, well, he he asked, "What good deeds shall I do to gain eternal life?" So this is a successful man. <clears throat> In world ter- terms, he has he has everything that one would want. Um, and he thinks, well, what, what things do I need to do um, to gain eternal life? Um, and he, he thinks he has a lot to offer. Um, he's got riches. He's got wealth. He's probably got some form of power. And he thinks he can use, do those good things for Jesus so that he can be saved. And he's wondering what those are. Um, he assumes that the deeds that he does and, and what's granted him wealth is good. Um, and in a worldly sense, at that time, it, I mean, and now it is good. Um, and he's done many good things, likely. Um, and he says he kept the commandments, which he he, he that is also a misunderstanding, as we talked about with the Good Samaritan. Um, the Pharisees and the rich young man didn't understand the law. They didn't understand. Um, they looked outwardly at what the commandments said. Um, and they thought that they could, by, by outwardly um, complying with them, that they could satisfy the law and, and be justified. Um, but they didn't understand the, 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 the severity of the law and the demand that that was something they can't satisfy. Um, but similar to the rich young man, we often um, we think about the things that we're good at. And... What, what we have to bring to the table. And you know, that helps form the basis of our identity. So, so you know, I'm a good father or a good mother, or I'm good at my job, I'm, I'm successful. I'm, I'm not talking about me, I'm just talking about like the things that <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm looked at favorably in the community, or I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm generally good to people, or I help other people out. Those are type things that may form our identity and how we justify ourselves, how we justify what what we have to bring. And um, when when someone makes a comment that that 
would suggest that that's not that the challenges our understanding of our identity, then that, that hurts, and, and we look to we look to seek to justify it and to show well, no, that's actually the case. We're, and you do that by comparing yourself with others and saying, well, he might be this, but you know, I'm I'm better at this, and and so it's kind of a, a form of scorekeeping. But there's one good. I want to show a clip from Seinfeld, as some of you heard earlier. Um, Paul Walker actually showed this. Um, Several years ago, but but and this is just a brief clip, but it's um, from the puffy shirt episode, which is one of the funnier episodes. Um, they're all funny, but um, and George, as usual, is um, having job struggles. He's trying to struggling with what he's going to do, um, and just as a matter of luck, he he goes to reach for a bag, and a, a hand model scout sees him. And she just says he has the most glorious hands, the, the, the most wonderful hands she's seen, and gives him her card. And so all of a sudden he goes from, I don't know what I'm going to do, to successful hand model. And he says, my hands are one in a million. And he takes on the identity very quickly. He goes on to say that um, that constant bickering is is bad for his hands and stress is bad for his epidermis. <laughs> so, I mean, the point is is that he was quick to leap into a new identity, and once he was in that identity, it was, he he was um, fearful. He was a- acting out of fear and anxiety. Well, what if something happens to my hand? Which, of course, it does um, because it. It always, I mean, it ultimately always will when we're trying to hold on to something tightly. And he's trying to hold on to this new um, potential for wealth that he has. And um, so he, <coughs> he, he's fearful and he's looking to protect it and hold on to it. Um, <clears throat> so what the rich young ruler, I mean the rich young man, um, thought was good, he, he could not see that in Jesus' terms, it's not something good that would lead to salvation. And that in, 
at the time, the things that were good, it wasn't the bad things that people were doing that led Jesus to be crucified. It was the good things. It was what people, it was keeping hanging on to their religion. It was um, keeping political systems in place. Um, it wasn't people's, what you would see as evil acts. It was that they were trying to do their perception of what they thought was good. Um, but as Jesus demonstrates, what's only good can come through the cross. So moving on with the labors in the vineyard, um, the workers who get there early, they're looking to provide for their family. They're unemployed. They don't have a regular job. So they go out to the marketplace early. They're ready to go. They're workers who you would look to see to hire right away. Um, so they negotiate with the landowner, they, which is a good thing to do. They, they get a good fair wage, and, and then they go and work. Um, and they work all day, they work hard, they bring in the harvest for the, for the um, grapes. <clears throat> and so as they think they're doing what's right. Um, and the, the workers who are... Um, who come in later in the day, who come in at the 11th hour. They've been sitting idly the whole day. No one's chosen them. They came out like the other ones looking for um, to work and get a full day's wage so they could provide for their family, so they could take it back home. But as vineyard owners and employers have come by, they've chosen others. And so by the end of the day, they're still standing there. They're just waiting. And when Jesus comes to them, or when, sorry, when the vineyard owner comes to them, um, he asked why they've been standing idly all day. And they just answer sim- simply, no one has hired us. So they're not trying to say, well, to justify why, why they weren't there. They're just, no one's hired us. They, they bring nothing to the table at this point. At most, they're looking to get, say, if, if a, a full wage is, uh, if a denarius is what you could pay for, for one day's work or good pay for one day's work, they might get a tenth of that. They might get a twelfth of that. Um, they have nothing to bring to the table. Um, and so they can't seek to justify themselves. They don't say, well, I, you know, the worker didn't, tell, didn't hire me. I mean, the employer didn't hire me because last time when I worked for him, he treated me unfairly. Or They, they have no justification for why they haven't been chosen. Um, and that's... Um, where God meets us, when we're trying to justify ourselves, um, when we are hanging on to our identity, He can't. His grace is the same, um, but it can't get through to us, and it, it can't. He can't use us to work when we're hanging on to what we have. But when we get to the point that we can bring nothing to the table, like the the workers hired at the eleventh hour, um, then that's where He meets us, and that's where. We need His grace, um, and, and His grace, and through His grace, we're we're raised. Um, so it goes on to say that those who um, <clears throat> the the workers who started first um, say these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the day and the scorching scorching heat. And the vineyard owner replies, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. So he answers kindly. Um, And they're looking for their fair share. They're looking for what they're owed. Um, Although it's a gift that they've been given, like George's 
hands. That's a gift. It's not something that they've really owned. It, 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 at that time, it wasn't um, common that people would go out and, and there were a lot of workers who would never get a day's work. So it was a gift. Um, and so, but once they've earned it, then they seek to hold on to it. Um, and and Jesus, the vineyard owner says, did you not agree with me to work for a denarius? So the parable also puts all of the workers on the same table. Um, we're all the same. It ends the scorekeeping that comes through trying to justify ourselves from um, to be from trying to um, gain salvation through works. Um, there's no need to compare ourselves with others because we're all on the same footing in God's eyes. And only when we're in need and we recognize that can can His grace come to us. Um, otherwise, we're captive to our fear and to our anxiety. <clears throat> Any thoughts so far? Any questions? Um, someone who understood the the la- the lame shall enter first, the last, the first will be the last will be first, and the first will be last is Flannery O'Connor, um, and she was a Southern writer. Um, she died when she was 39. Um, of lupus um, and a lot of her stories bear out God's grace through the least and, and the, those who come last um, and towards the end of her life she wrote a story called Revelation she'd been in hospital beds um, for a long time and had been spending a lot of time in hospital beds and it's about Ruby Turpin um, who is kind of a middle-aged woman. Um, she's referred to often as very large. She has, um, she sees herself um, as being a good person, better than a lot of the others. And I'll, I'll read kind of a, a, a part from the beginning. And she's kind of looking over the other people in the, in the hospital room um, and being thankful that um, she's not like them. So she sees a um, what's described as a very ugly person whose mother says that Mary Grace goes to Wellesley College um, in Massachusetts. In the summer, she just keeps right on studying. So she's got a nose and a book. And Miss Turpin tries to make conversation with her. And her mother's kind of embarrassed that, that the girl is not responding back to her. Um, so her mother says, I think that the worst thing in the world, she said, is an ungrateful person. And they're referring to this girl. To have everything and not appreciate it. I know a girl, she said, who has parents who would give her anything. A little brother who loves her dearly and who's getting a good education. Who wears the best clothes, but who can never say a kind word to anyone. Who never smiles. Who just criticizes and complains all day long. Is she too old to paddle, Claude asked. Claude is Ruby's husband. The girl's face was almost purple. Yes, the lady said. I'm afraid there's nothing to do but leave her to folly. Someday she'll wake up and it'll be too late. It never hurt anyone to smile, Miss Turpin said. It just makes you feel better all over. Of course, the lady said sadly, but there are just some people you can't tell anything to. They just can't take the criticism. If it's one thing I am, Miss Turpin said with feeling, it's grateful. When I think all I could have been besides myself and what all I got, it's a little of everything and a good disposition besides. 
I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. It could have been different. For one thing, somebody else could have got clawed. At the thought of this, she was flooded with gratitude, and a terrible pang of joy ran through her. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. She cried aloud. The book struck her directly over her left eye. It struck almost the same instance that she realized that the girl was about to hurl it. Before she could utter a sound, the raw face came crashing across the table towards her howling. The girl's finger sank like clamps into the soft flesh of her neck. So the girl had been listening to her and listening to her companions. She talks about white trash and, and other people um, who are in the room and how she's th and thankful that she's not like them. And the girl's listening to this. She throws a book at her and knocks her down and then tackles her. <laughs> so um, then she says, go back to hell where you came from, you old wart warthog. And so the, once she recovers, and it, it causes Ruby to reflect. And um, it, at first, she's angry, like, where did this girl get off doing that? She's telling people the story. They're like, you're so nice. Why would anybody do anything like that? And then she kind of goes off by herself. And she go, actually goes out to the hog farm and is uh, just looking over the hogs. And she thinks, she says, how am I a hog? What? There's a hog farm at the hospital? No, she goes back home, sorry. Okay. <laughs> her, she, was at the, she was at the hospital because her husband's leg was hurt. Oh, okay. But then she gets treated once she gets hit in the face. And um, the girl knocks her down. But so she's back at home. Her husband leaves, and she's just going out to kind of think. And she says, what do you send me a message like that for? She said in a low, fierce voice, barely above a whisper, but with the force of a shout and its concentrated fury. How am I, I, how am I a hog and me both? How am I saved and from hell too? <clears throat> so it continues on. Miss Turpin stood there, her gaze fixed on the highway. All her muscles rigid until in five or six minutes the truck reappeared returning. She waited until it had time to turn into their own road. Then like a monumental statue coming to life, she bent her head slowly and gazed as if through the very heart of mystery, down into the pig parlor at the hogs. They had settled all in one corner around the old sow who was grunting softly. A red glow suffused, suffused them. They appeared to pant with a secret life. Until the sun slipped finally behind the tree line, Mrs. Turpin remained there with her gaze bent to them as if she were absorbing some abysmal life-giving knowledge. At last, she lifted her head. There was only a purple streak in the sky, cutting through a field of crimson and leading like an extension of the highway into descending dusk. She raised her hands from the side of the pen in a gesture hieratic and profound. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling towards heaven. There were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives, and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of this procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized as at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. 
Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. She lowered her hands and gripped the rail of the hog pen, her eyes small but fixed unblinkingly on what lay ahead. In the moment, the vision faded, but she remained where she was, immobile. At length, she got down and turned on the faucet and made her slow way on the darkening path to the house. In the woods around her was an invisible cricket choruses had struck up, but what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting hallelujah. <clears throat> so, in... In, in Ruby's getting ha God's grace, um, where she would initially think that getting hit in the head with a um, book was something horrible, being called a hog from hell, a warthog from hell, uh, I mean, it appears to be something very bad. But, um, I mean, she complains about it, people commiserate with her. But in the end, so, something that she would consider to be the worst caused her to reflect on how things were and caused her to look at her life um, and just think about her preconceptions, about the white trash and the freaks and the lunatics and uh, herself and, and her preconceptions and the good people, people who did things right, as she saw. Um, and so the, the, the book was actually a very graceful act to her. And and being the least, um, she, she saw that she could actually accept grace and join the chorus as her preconceptions were being burned away. Um, and the identity that she built up and that she so fiercely protected was stripped from her and, and she could enter heaven along with the, the freaks and the lunatics who were entering first because they had less to be stripped away. Um, <clears throat> and there are there are some other stories that she has like that I that I considered reading, um, but um, there's one called the lame shall enter first, and it's a, um, a social worker who brings in a kind of a criminal type child, um, just a um, homeless person, a uh, an orphan. Um, who's done a lot of bad things and steals things, and he thinks he can reform him. He finds a lot of promise in him, and he thinks he and he thinks he's doing it because he's a good person and because he um, <clears throat> and that when this person when, when, that he brings in does great things and turns around, well then everyone's going to look on him with. Um, it, is a savior for the for for Rufus Johnson, who's who is a child. Um, since we've got some time, um, so what happens ultimately is that the child it does not turn out to what he thinks he is, and he starts stealing again, and he rejects the the social worker who also has another child. Um, and he get the police come and take him away. And here's the father saying, I have nothing to reproach myself with, he repeated. His voice sounded dry and harsh. I did more for him than I did for my own child. He was swept with a sudden panic. He heard the boy's jubilant voice. Satan has you in its power. I have nothing to reproach myself with, he began again. I did more for him than I did for my own child. He heard his voice as if it were a voice of an accuser. He repeated the sentence silently. 
Slowly his face drained of color. It became almost gray beneath the white halo of his hair. The sentence echoed in his mind, each syllable like a dull blow. His mouth twisted and he closed his eyes against the revelation. Norton's face rose before him, empty, forlorn. His left eye listening almost imperceptibly towards the outer rim as if it could not bear a full view of grief. His heart constricted with a repulsion for himself so clear and intense that he gasped for breath. He had stuffed his own emptiness with the good works like a glutton. He had ignored his own child to feed his vision of himself. He saw the clear-eyed devil, the sounder of hearts, leering at him from the eyes of Johnson. His image of himself shriveled until everything was black before him. He sat there, paralyzed, aghast. He saw Norton at the telescope, all back and ears. Saw his arms shoot up and wave frantically. A rush of agonizing love for the child rushed over him like a transfusion of life. The little boy's face appeared to him transformed, the image of salvation, all light. He groaned with joy. He would make everything up to him. <clears throat> so in that, in, in going to the cross, although it's not anything any of us would um, willfully do, um, we don't want to suffer. And, and, but in that going to the cross, that's where we're saved. Um, and as Jesus was trying to get across through the workers in the vineyard um, parable and in response to the rich young man, um, as he was the Messiah. He was going to die, and he was headed to Jerusalem. Um, but, but through that, um, and, and through, that um, through his death, when we're in need and recognize that we bring nothing to the table, that we... He can work with us, and, and, and we can be saved, and he can work through us. Any other thoughts, uh, questions? I guess what if you don't have any tragic type of circumstances? It doesn't necessarily, well, does it? Well, it, I mean, I, that's a great question. And it doesn't have to be, I mean, everyone has, I mean, if, if I think from living and um, you all have things that you're we're trying to accomplish, and things that um, ways we see our, see ourselves, and we're always going to encounter difficulty, and there, there's always going to be tragedy at some point. Um, and it it's not that you need to have tragedy or you need to do this. It's just that's where God's grace. Um, we can come to God's grace and we can be risen again is through difficulty when we're at the end of our rope. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be difficulty. I mean, what about children that come to be saved that have experienced no... I mean, I'm just saying... Right. Well, I mean, I mean once you're saved, you're, you're saved. And um, it's just when... Um, it's necessary right. that you. It's necessary that you recognize that you bring nothing to the table, and you. The, the nature of the human condition is that you very rarely recognize that about yourself unless you're yeah. rub your nose in it. You know, your nose get whether that's you get your third DUI or whatever. I mean, like whatever the presenting problem is for you, and um, so. Yeah, I've noticed that sometimes God has to hit me with a book, 
knock me down and say, would you put, rub your nose in it? And then other times it's a more gracious, gradual mm -hmm. learning and feeling and just coming to realizations of, of and, and that sanctifying yeah. process. And then sometimes it's sort of a, a 90 degree or 180, you know, real turn. As you say, whether it's a crisis or whether it's just a slow growing, I think sometimes the slow growing happens in the body of Christ in Sunday schools and small groups where you just become more and more aware of how you fall short or how I fall short of the glory of God or how, and that, that those aren't necessarily painful. They're just, they're just, that's just another way of growth. Yeah, very good. Um, it's right. It's it's not. I mean, and when we're trying to uh, save ourselves, and when we're holding on to things that we, you know, to um, and trying to to um, justify ourselves or to to um, to do good to um, get where we want to be. I mean, that that that's fine. But that's when we can't see that we need God and that we're totally dependent on God. And, um, and um, like Mary said and like Richard said, I mean, it doesn't have to be tragedy. And it's something that whenever we see that that's the case and that we're totally dependent and we, as we do through um, coming to Sunday school and, and church and um, then it's renewed. And when we hear God's word, um, it, it meets us in our need. And it shows us that we do have that need. So, and, and the message of the parable is that God's grace is given independent of what you bring to the table. Mm -hmm. yeah. and like, it doesn't matter if you work one hour or 12, you know, or how little you do. It's totally uncorrelated to. Yeah, that there's, it, there's no need to scorekeep. I, I mean, is one of uh, Robert Capon. He says. Um, the world could have been saved by bookkeeping. It would have been saved by Moses, not Jesus. And therefore, the only adverse judgment falls on the world, falls on those who take their stand on the life God cannot use rather than the death he can. Only the winners lose because only the losers can win. The reconciliation can, simply cannot work any other way. Evil cannot be gotten out of the word board by re reward and punishment. Um, so, like, I mean, so we're all in we're all in the same boat and you know once you become a Christian um, that doesn't change it's the, we're thankful that the parable is not um, once you you know once the workers um, were given a denarius they were told the next day to come in at six um, or I mean if the, if the message had been that we need to um, that you get what you're due the parable the workers who um, came at the get, at the eleventh hour, get a one twelfth of everything. Then we would have to. Um, the only way to be saved would be to work better than the others. But thankfully, um, like Richard said, um, we're saved regardless of what what we bring to the table or the measure of what we bring to the table. Ron, yes. um, I need to tell you how I came to faith. About seven years ago, I was thinking, and I became aware of the fact that my life was damn near perfect. I had a perfect wife, a perfect house, a perfect job. My family was absolutely perfect. And I realized that none of this had happened because I was so smart or clever. It was the reality that somebody 
will be marching openly. And as soon as I realized that, I had just thrown myself in the way. This is exactly the my life. I really appreciate what you're doing here. Thanks for that, John. Any other thoughts, questions? Thanks. Okay. Oh, let me pray. Sorry, I forgot to pray at the beginning. <laughs> Dear Lord, thanks for giving, thank you for giving us your word through the parable and help us see your grace and your love, um, whether we're the workers who show first in the morning or we're the ones who come at the end. In your name, amen. Amen.